Welcome to the first episode of America's Constitution, uh, a new podcast with Professor Akhil Reed Amar from Yale University, who was an acknowledged expert on all aspects of the Constitution. And uh, we're very excited to get this started because we're going to be talking about constitutional issues that are really on the minds of people all over our country. Um, it seems like every day the editorial op-ed pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times are filled with uh, commentary and expertise, uh, real or imagined, on the, uh, on the Constitution. And uh, one thing that you uh, will know that you're getting when you listen to this podcast is actual expertise, because we'll have Professor Marr at all times, as well as a series of uh, guests, quite remarkable guests, actually. We're going to have uh, Bob Woodward uh, speaking to us about Nixon and Trump. We'll have the great Nina Totenberg, the uh, longtime legal affairs correspondent for NPR. Uh, Michael uh, Gerhardt will speak to us about presidential impeachments, a uh, timely subject to be sure. Uh, Neil Katyal, who was the uh, former acting solicitor general of the United States, a consultant to MSNBC, and the attorney who's argued more cases before the Supreme Court than any other person of color in American history, passing Thurgood Marshall in recent years. Larry Lessig is going to come and speak to us on faithless electors, uh, constitutional reform, and big tech. And John Furick, the draftsman of the 25th Amendment, will come and speak with us on that amendment. And we expect more exciting guests to be announced uh, shortly. It's really an incredibly exciting lineup because not only are these guests accomplished and brilliant, but they're also entertaining, articulate, and they have a real desire to connect with the public and share their insights into the Constitution. So I can't wait. So welcome, Akil. Uh, thank you very much, Andy. I should introduce you since you've introduced me. Andy Lipka is one of my closest friends in the world. He happens to be a retired ophthalmologist, but he knows more about law and constitutional law in particular than just about anyone I know. And over the last few years, when Andy's and my friendship has uh, particularly deepened, we average probably about an hour a day just talking about uh, the stuff in the news back and forth. And at a certain point, uh, Andy said, well, listen, let's, let's bring other people uh, into this conversation because because maybe they'll be interested too. Um, and Andy always asks me smarter and harder questions than anyone else I know. Uh, so he'll be in some ways a, a representative, I think, of, of the broader audience. And he will hold my feet to the fire. Eventually, I'm hoping we'll actually even have maybe, in addition to a guest segment, pretty much every show, um, we'll also have um, at some point uh, an opportunity for... Uh, audience members to uh, submit their questions to Andy and he'll curate them and filter them and and, uh, and pass on uh, the ones that he thinks are the, the most interesting um, uh, to the rest of you all. Exactly. I think we'll, we'll be setting up a, a mechanism on Professor Amar's uh, website, which is akilamar.com, and uh, there'll be a place where you'll be able to actually record a, you know, your own voice, uh, voicing a, uh, a question. And if the question is, you know, is appropriate to the discussion that day or just particularly interesting on something we recently discussed, then we'll play that and then uh, we'll have an opportunity to discuss it. So, uh, so you'll be involved as well. So very happy to have everyone on board. So today is January 7th, 2021, when we're recording this, and it's the day after, uh, you know, a wild day in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Uh, uh, perhaps... Uh, I've, we've heard people refer to it as a, a day that will live in infamy, as if it rose to the level of Pearl Harbor. Perhaps it's, that's not the case, but nevertheless, I think it's certainly a day that will be long remembered. And, uh, of course, lots of things happened with constitutional significance on that day, and we're going to get into that at some point. But I think that um, many of us were looking to that day as a day where we would exhale, where uh, a period of uncertainty uh, um, would be replaced with a degree of, of, of certainty um, after the Congress would uh, ratify uh, the, the 
or, or note the votes of the Electoral College, and uh, as, the, uh, as the Constitution says, the person with the most votes shall be president. Um, but really, that, that begs the question, or at least raises the question, of you know, what were those uncertainties? You know, what could happen and why could these things happen um, in, in the period leading up to this? And so today we're going to talk about some of those problems. It, uh, perhaps we might look at it as those that we've avoided are kind of bullets that we dodged. Um, it's a kind of an unfortunate phrase in a way in the view of, uh, of the fact that someone actually died yesterday from a bullet. But nevertheless, I think you know, it's, it, it, it is apropos. So if we go back, let's say, to uh, the period around election day itself, let's say immediately preceding election day, um, what constitutional questions sort of hang in the air around that time, Kiel? So, Andy, you're in part building on a testimony that I gave on Groundhog's Day, uh, February 2nd, 1994, uh, before the Congress. Um, it became an article uh, called Presidents, Vice Presidents, and Death, Closing the Constitution's uh, Succession Gap. And by the way, that article is uh, available on the website that Andy mentioned, akilamar.com, which Andy has also created on my behalf. Um, I worried aloud about all sorts of possible catastrophes that could occur um, in our presidential election system. The presidency is so important. Let me just begin with that because it vests so much power in one person, 24-7, 365. That's not true when you're voting for a member of the House of Representatives. There are 435 of them. Or when you're voting for one of 100 senators, you're voting for one person who wields the power of an entire branch of government. There are nine justices um, and, and uh, a thousand federal judges and all, but there's one president. So much turns on this. So, and we only do presidential elections every four years, and we do do them every four years, even though Donald Trump floated the idea of somehow suspending that this time around. So, so much rides on the selection of a president, of a person, and the presidential election process. And I think there are all these disasters waiting to happen that we haven't talked about. And I'm not sure I have the solutions to all of them, but I want to identify some of the problems. So let me begin, by, and this is a bullet dodged, perhaps pun intended. What if some absolutely horrible mishap had occurred right before the general election. And we have to think about things like this because um, I'm, I'm going to be autobiographically, or my very first television memory, I'm five years old, is John Kennedy's assassination. And that was um, a bulletin um, when I was in kindergarten on TV. I grew up in California, and um, I'm nine years old, and there's the California primary for the presidency, and Bobby Kennedy is killed basically before my eyes, almost. Um, and that was at the end of the primary season, uh, Bobby Kennedy's death. But imagine that it had been on the eve of the actual election. Um, and I'll give you one more biographical and autobiographical note. I was the, um, one of the many um, informal advisors to the TV show The West Wing, um, great TV series. And um, spoiler alert here, so if you haven't seen the last season of The West Wing, you may need to plug your ears for about 15 seconds. But in that um, uh, last season, the vice presidential candidate, Leo McGarry, actually dies on election day. And some people have voted and some people haven't. The West Coast hasn't fully voted yet. What would happen if shortly before the election there were some mishap? Um, could be an assassination. It, it could be today, COVID or, or lightning striking, God, God forbid. Now, happily, nothing did happen. So that's why I feel a little more able to talk about it now because I'm on that, I'm able to exhale just a bit. But I was not sleeping well right before the election because that's a window of vulnerability. And I thought so ever since my testimony on February 2nd, 1994. Uh, let me uh, get at it one final way. Um, our audience remembers 9-11, of course. In fact, that was an election day in New York City. Um, but New York law permitted the election to be postponed even after some folks had begun to vote. Um, the governor 
was allowed to, in effect, cancel the election, and Governor Pataki did that. But what happened? What would have happened if something like 9-11 had occurred right before or even, God forbid, on presidential election day? Uh, so um, we only do this once every four years, pick a president. So here are options. We just don't do anything. We, we just whistle past the graveyard, so to speak, and just hope we get lucky. Um, and people may not know what they're voting for on election day. Suppose it were a death at the top of the ticket, not as in the West Wing episode um, with a bottom of the ticket, um, a vice presidential candidate's death. Um, so we just keep going. Um, but people don't know what they're voting for. Will a vote for a person who's known to be dead on election day even be counted? Um, and, and how would that work? And, and in fact, there's uncertainty about this because there's a very unfortunate congressional pres- precedent from long ago um, in which there's a suggestion that votes for dead candidates are simply um, utterly invalid. And if they're utterly invalid, then um, that v- person's vice presidential candidate maybe wouldn't be uh, uh, sworn in on Inauguration Day, which is what would make the most sense, right? So let, let's just work backwards. Um, if, God forbid, something happens to a president the day after the inauguration, well, we know what to do. It's, it's the vice president. That's why we picked the vice president, to, to be the number two. You might think, okay, the same basic um, line of succession should, in effect, operate um, if the death occurs earlier. If the death occurs um, right before election day, let's imagine, but the ballots are already printed up and we just go through with the election um, and people vote. Um, they vote for the dead person, knowing that basically that person's veep, if, 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 if they get the most votes, um, will be elected. That's actually what happened in Missouri um, many years ago. Um, there was a plane crash um, in, that killed a senatorial candidate, Mel Carnahan, uh, and uh, the ballots had already been printed up, and so basically it was announced that um, if Mel Carnahan is going to remain on the ballot, and, and if he wins, this was against John Ashcroft, um, the, um, the governor will treat it as a, there will be a vacancy formally in the, in the Senate spot, and the governor will actually pick a replacement, and he'll pick Mel Carnahan's um, widow. Gene Carnahan. And that's actually what happened in Missouri. The dead guy, Carnahan, beat Ashcroft and, in effect, his, his widow took over. So we could just say, we won't do anything at all. Um, some people will be confused. They won't know what they're voting for. We're not going to even delay the election, even though there might be mass pandemonium. Maybe it's a terrorist incident. We'll just um, hope for the best. And, and, and maybe, actually, the Congress will do the right thing um, and will count the vote for um, the dead person as valid, meaning that the running mate, the vice president, will be inaugurated on Inauguration Day. But there's this precedent that I briefly alluded to. It's the Greeley case. The Horace Greeley Greeley precedent. Okay, it's the presidential election of 1872, an incumbent, Ulysses S. Grant, running on the Republican ticket against Horace Greeley, Go West young man, um, uh, the famous um, newspaper man, Horace Greeley. He's now a Democrat. He runs against uh, Grant in 1872. Um, he loses, um, uh, but some, he did win some states, uh, and he, but he dies between the election and the meeting of the Electoral College, and some electors still vote for him. And when Congress meets, they basically... Um, say, oh, those votes for the dead guy don't count at all. Now, it didn't matter in that case because Grant had won. But suppose Greeley had actually won. Is it right to disregard those votes? Because shouldn't his vice presidential running mate be the guy who takes the oath of office um, uh, in the the new term um, rather than the loser of the election? Um, Again, it didn't matter in 1873 when Congress met and they just voted to disregard Greeley's votes. So this um, was uh, this was done in a manner similar to what we saw yesterday, where although I don't think they had the Electoral Count Act at that point, they did not. But Congress didn't just 
didn't certify the, that those votes. Correct, right? and that's one of the very few times in congressional history where they actually have declined to certify votes that were actually um, submitted um, by uh, the relevant state authorities. Um, now, I think now, does it, that have a, a, any kind of precedential? That's what worries me. Point? That's what worries me because we live in such a partisan world. Because who should be? Let's imagine again in our scenario that we just don't do anything at all. Um, but people vote for someone that, that um, dies sometime during election day now, or right before, or, or even right after, but in that window. Um, and then, and, and, and that party wins. Um, and what people are really, let's call that candidate Smith. Um, and they're voting for um, Ms. Smith. But suppose lightning hit Ms. Smith or a terrorist um, incident. Well, then they should get Ms. Smith's running mate. Let's, let's call him Jones. So they don't get Smith, but they should get Jones. That's, that's what would have happened if lightning had struck Smith after Inauguration Day. You know, why shouldn't it be before? But, um, but there's massive uncertainty about all this because maybe Congress controlled by the other party, maybe both House and Senate are controlled by the other party in, um, in, in January, um, when the new Congress meets and counts electoral votes, maybe they'll say, oh, it's too bad, so sad, but these are the rules, um, the Greeley precedent, we, we're not going to count that, and so our guy wins, you know. Um, wow, would that have legitimacy? And do American people know what the rules are? And the, and the Greeley precedent is really off point in a couple of respects, um, and, and, and the most important of which is it didn't matter in 1872-73, because Grant had won, so they didn't pay much attention to it. But boy, it and would matter. he won matter. overwhelmingly also. Um, but boy, it would matter. Um, see, Andy knows all his history. It really would matter um, if the wi- it, w- it was a, a tragedy for the winner. Now, that's only one of several possible permutations. Suppose it's a death at the bottom of the ticket. Um, you know, um, should the, and that was the Leo McGarry case in, in the West Wing episode, should the election go on. So what are our other options? Well, we could have a statute that says um, we're going to have a postponement of the election for a brief period so that people can figure out what the heck is going on and, and we can have a new slate of, of live candidates. Okay, but that's going to require congressional statute, and Congress probably has power to do that, has the power to decide the date of the presidential election uh, under Article Two of the Constitution and the congressional election under uh, House and Senate under Article One, Section 4. Um, and current law says it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Why, why, why does it have to be after the first Monday? Because they didn't want it to be um, if, the, if the first Tuesday in November was November 1st. They didn't want it to be November 1st, truthfully, because they thought people might be hungover after Halloween. So it was to be the first Tuesday after the first Monday. So somewhere between November 2nd and November 9th, basically. Um, November 8th. So uh, maybe we could have a statute saying, in certain contingencies, we're going to delay the election. But by how much and in what contingencies and who decides that? Because uh, that's a lot of power. Maybe a party is, is behind in the polls and it could use another week because it seems to be trending um, uh, uh, upward in, 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 in the polls. So, you know, I proposed way back when, uh, in my congressional testimony, you could imagine possibly the Chief Justice of the United States being um, a sufficiently credible person uh, to make the determination about whether the contingency had been met. And, and maybe the statute actually gives three possibilities, or a week-long delay, a 10-day delay. Um, uh, by the way, we don't have election day anymore. We have election season. People are voting, sometimes um, early voting, for, for weeks in advance. Are all I think the- that's an argument for not changing the people that are on the ballot, because people have already voted, you know, at the, uh, earlier... And down ballots, too. You know, are we going to have a separate election for the presidency and vice presidency, or is it going to be one ballot with everyone else's name on it, candidates for Senate and Congress and, and, and um, mayor and all the way down, and, 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 and state legislators and, and dog catcher? Um, so um, these are questions that we need to try to f- figure out. Um, uh, uh, are we going ha- to just wipe the slate entirely clean because of a problem at the top of the ticket? Or you could have just say, ah, it's only the presidential election that's affected. We want it, but we want to make sure that the American people know really who they're voting for, not just, you know, 
Um, now, okay, this person's dead, so the number two will will be substituted. But who's that person's vice president candidate going to be? And and given that we only do these elections so rarely, shouldn't the American people actually know who's going to be, you know, president and the number two? Um, so so that's an argument. Okay, maybe we should uh, delay the thing. But do you Let trust me push the chief back justice? On that a little bit. Okay, so you know we're we're starting this at election day, but really there's there's another day. Um, earlier, which is when the parties nomin- nominate their candidate. Yes. So they, they nominate their candidate, and then they let's say that candidate dies, but still fairly well in advance of election day. So now there's an opportunity to substitute a candidate. Correct. Now that varies by state, is that right? Um, so, so uh, well, state law often determines, you know, state law determines whether technically there's even going to be an election for, for president. Um, Article 2 says... State legislatures, and I would say governed by state constitutions, uh, come up with rules in advance for um, how the presidential electors are to be picked. But yeah, most states basically say <clears throat> if there's a, a, um, um, a, 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 um, a, a there needs to be a substitution of someone on the ballot, you can do that before a certain day. And the political parties are allowed to substitute. Now, each party has its own set of rules. The, the major parties, Democrats and Republicans, its own constitution, so to speak. Um, and if it's well in advance of the election, then the parties are going to reconvene. Um, remember, well, some of you will remember back in 1972, uh, the Democratic National Convention said it's going to be George McGovern and Tom Eagleton. Um, but then some issue, uh, information came out about Tom Eagleton. He had had electroshock therapy. So he was dumped from the ticket and replaced with Sergeant Shriver. And the parties were able to do that. Um, perhaps um, it would be best of all as a practical matter not to have the parties come up with all this on the fly, um, but for the presidential nominee of each party to actually have a list, um, a a succession list. Okay, it's going to be me. You know, my name is, you know, uh, a Smith and, and my Veep, uh, my, my running mate is, is Jones. Oh, and then after that, we've got um, Green and, and, um, and, and Yellow, uh, Ms. Green and Mr. Yellow and, um, and Ms. Pink or something. You have a whole, whole list. Now, by the way, um, if, we, if we think, and should the voters know about that in advance? Should they know the line of succession that's, that's, that's imagined if there's, if there's some mishap before election day? Should that be public? Um, maybe that actually can raise some other questions because you could say, for example, well, I'm going to also name this person number three, but they'll also be my Secretary of State, which could be relevant to questions of presidential succession, which we'll talk about in another in another session. Um, the other thing, though, H- hang on I- on that. We will talk about presidential succession in another statute. But here's what Andy is saying that we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. But what Andy is saying is uh, that. Um, the current presidential succession statute says, well, there's president and there's vice president and then there's Speaker of the House. He knows that I've taken the position that Speaker of the House is actually um, not sound as the number three, either constitutional or um, as a matter of policy. It really should be, in effect, a cabinet officer, someone handpicked by the, the president. Um, and if it's a cabinet officer... Um, then maybe actually, and let's imagine it's Secretary of State, it could be something else, maybe um, the presidential nominee should tell us in advance not only who their vice presidential running mate is, who's on the ballot, but who their Secretary of State will be, who will be number three. So actually you know the line of succession, in effect, uh, in advance. Uh, and um, and that person, um, if God forbid something happens, has more um of a mandate to actually govern because the American people sort of voted uh, for the ticket knowing that that person um, was number three. That removes and, and, one uh, of the objections to that type of succession, which is that the, the cabinet members are not elected, strictly speaking. Uh, and that was an issue, by the way, in the, the West Wing episode because actually um, when Leo McGarry dies, um, um, Matt Santos has a... Uh, um, uh, uh, um, a, a choice about whether he and the Democratic Party are just going to substitute someone else for vice president to be rubber-stamped by the electors um, on Electoral College meeting day. Um, um, but that person wasn't sort of pre-approved by the voters, or instead whether he's going to wait until after inauguration and um, uh, name someone under the 25th Amendment 
Uh, and now you see how constitutional law, it's a system. All these things are connected. Under the 25th Amendment, um, uh, which is about presidential succession, um, and boy, people are talking about the 25th Amendment on today, That when Andy and I are doing this podcast, uh, January 7th. Um, but um, under the 25th Amendment, you vote for Nixon, and if you don't get Nixon, you get his hand-picked running mate, Spiro Agnew. Oh, but Agnew resigned, so if you don't get Agnew, you get his next hand-picked running mate who Congress approves on the 25th Amendment, Gerald Ford. Oh, and then when Nixon steps aside, Ford's president, and then you get his hand-picked running, um, um, uh, a, a person, Nelson Rockefeller, approved by Congress on the 25th Amendment. That's an idea of apostolic succession effect. You vote for um, Smith, and if you don't get Smith, you get Jones, and if you don't get Jones, then you get green and yellow and, and blue and, and pink, and, and I can't even remember all the colors I gave you, but, but you basically get... Um, uh, the person either that you voted for or someone whose mandate traces directly, really, to the person whom you, you did vote for. And if that's how we do it, um, if people die um, seriatim after the inauguration, if they die, um, but not all at the same time, it's not a terrorist um, episode or something, um, but they die or, or leave one by one, that you basically gets the person you voted for or that person's uh, running mate or someone picked by the person you voted for or the running mate whom you also voted for. You, um, if that's what you get, if mishap happens after Inauguration Day, shouldn't we probably, perhaps try to do that before even Election Day by telling you, the voters, what the line of succession is, which we can't quite do if it's Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the House actually could be someone from the opposite political party even, um, and someone who has no connection to the president um, that we are, or the, the candidate that we vote for, has no idea what that person really believes on, on things. So, so uh, a better approach might be, oh, have um, uh, parties tell us not just who the top of the ticket is and the number two person, but maybe the number three person. If the statute says Secretary of State's actually next in line, which our statute's don't say now, but could. So now you're seeing how a presidential succession statute is connected to issues of election day or election day window mishap. Now that's only one of several of the bullets dodge. Nothing happened. We were lucky. You know, nothing has happened in years past. In 1968, when I'm nine years old, it's Bobby Kennedy at the end of the primary season, way before the general election. So the, the Democratic Party was able to regroup and nominate um, uh, um, uh, Humphrey. And you said if it's way before the election, the parties can basically tell us, put substitute people in. But what happens if it's right before election or during an election? And this is more likely to happen now than ever before because we don't have election day. We have election week or election month and election season and if it's already started do we wipe the slate clean do and start over again do we delay do we only do it for the top of the ticket who should decide under what contingencies these are all the bullets so to speak that we dodged in the election day window that we have to think about going forward for future elections and these are going to be painful conversations to have but we have to think about continuity in government we have to especially think so think about this because of international terrorism and how this is a, an area of vulnerability in our system. And thank goodness, you know, those who wish America ill haven't actually um, um, uh, succeeded in completely um, uh, deranging our system on election day or in election season, which is so important in our democracy, presidential election season. Well, not just, you know, not just international terrorism, it wouldn't be too hard to see a scenario yesterday where Mike Pence could have been killed. He was there in the, you know, in the in the in the Senate chamber or in the chamber where they had the joint session. People were there with, with guns. You know, they didn't know how. You know, they could hear people coming. There was a moment of of high drama. Mike Pence is killed. Then there's you're hearing today calls for President Trump to to be removed with the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Well, now you've got no Vice President. You've got no you know, president. Now you've got President Pelosi. Um, I'm at particularly worried since, and so here's another bullet dodged. And, I, and I'm sharing this with you all, uh, um, uh, audience members, because we've dodged these bullets. But I want you to know these are things that I've been worrying about. Well, I haven't been sleeping. So, uh, so we dodged election day. 
bullets, but there were similar set of issues that we're about to talk about, I hope, uh, about vulnerability right before the meeting of the Electoral College. And none of this is specific to this um, uh, uh, race. These are things uh, about uh, presidential elections that I've been worrying about all the way uh, back to 1994 when I gave testimony to Congress on this issue. So we're talking about um, the notion that it's useful for the voters to know, of course, who the VP is likely to be, as well as possibly even people further down the line of succession when they vote, uh, including in the situation when uh, the, the candidate either at the top or number two part of the ticket has died. Um, but if you project that backwards to the conventions, it's a little bit different, right? Because a lot of times we're voting for it's in the primaries for a presidential candidate without any knowledge about who the vice presidential candidate will be. And here, uh, the process of uh, presidential and vice presidential selection has changed very dramatically over the years. Uh, until the middle of the first third of the 20th century, uh, parties picked presidential and vice presidential nominees in general, and the ticket mates didn't pick each other. Uh, so Abraham Lincoln didn't pick Hannibal Hamlin, who was his running mate in 1860. Once he was an incumbent president, uh, he, and he ends up, uh, ha Hamlin gets it and ends up getting dumped from the ticket. And we're still not sure, historians are not sure, how much of a personal role Abraham Lincoln played in basically um, moving Hamlin off the ticket and, and instead uh, uh, adding Andrew Johnson. Uh, so um, well into the 20th century, candidates have sometimes thrown it open to the convention to pick the vice presidential nominee. That's what Adlai Stevenson did in 1954, uh, famously to inject a little bit of drama. Uh, it was a rematch of Stevenson versus uh, uh, Eisenhower. Eisenhower had, had spanked Stevenson pretty dramatically in 52. Stevenson's trying to introduce then, yeah. uh, a little drama in 56. Um, and it was basically Estes Kefauver versus a young Jack Kennedy and Kefauver won. But that's already in the middle of the 20th century and, and um, presidential uh, nominees, the, 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 the party ticket leader, isn't invariably picking his, and thus far it's been his, uh, number two, his wingman, his, his running mate. Um, but the modern practice is very much that whoever wins the nomination basically gets to pick number two. That makes particular sense uh, when you think again about presidential succession. I know it seems that we're kind of lurching back and forth, but presidential selection has to be understood in connection with what the presidency is all about, what the office is all about, and you have to think about actually how that office um, uh, uh, ends, or the, the next, who would be the next president, that's presidential succession. If there's an election, fine, um, but if not, um, if there's d death or disability or resignation, how does pr um, presidential succession work? And of course, the vice president is the, the top of the succession list. That's the vice president's most important constitutional role. And in the 20th century, there comes to be a realization that it's very important that there be a very close working relationship between presidents and vice presidents. In a nuclear world, for example, um, you don't want there to be um, any um, a gap between um, a, a president and, and, and the vice president. Um, you want them to be working very closely together um, because minutes might matter um, in a nuclear situation. This is what America comes to see after Jack Kennedy's assassination. And um, if you're going to imagine this close working relationship um, and the 25th Amendment is going to come into the picture, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, in subsequent podcasts. But one aspect of the 25th Amendment is when there's no vice president, then there's a process for filling the vice presidential vacancy. There wasn't until 1960, um, the mid-1960s. For 40 years of the first 160 years of American history, the vice presidency has been vacant, either because the vice president died 
or resigned. Uh, actually, uh, John C. Calhoun resigned early. Um, uh, later, Vice President um, Spur Agnew would resign. So for, for one quarter of the time, there wasn't a vice presidency, a vice president, either because the vice president basically you know, was, was, had died or resigned, or the vice president moved up to become president because a president had back then um, died. We didn't have any resignations until Nixon. So um, um, uh, Zachary Taylor uh, dies, and uh, William, Henry, William Henry Harrison dies, and Zachary Taylor, and Abraham Lincoln, and William McKinley, and, um, uh, and Warren G. Harding, and, and, and uh, FDR. So, um, so once we realize, oh, it's very important to have um, a vice president working closely with the president at all times. So one part of the 25th Amendment is, is going to say when there's a vice presidential vacancy, the president handpicks the successor, and the Congress has to approve it specially, but it's handpicked by the president. That's a reflection of the emerging practice of the political parties in the mid-20th century that it's the nominee who picks the running mate. And another thing about the 25th Amendment, there are several features, and people are talking about the 25th Amendment today, January 7th, is suppose the president is going to undergo some sort of scheduled um, operation, a colonoscopy, um, and going to be you know, under anesthesia for a few minutes or a few hours. Should they, um, the 25th Amendment says, you can hand off power um, temporarily to your VEEP and then um, reclaim it. But that's only going to work when there's a close working relationship between president and vice president. And another provision of the 25th Amendment says, oh, it's the vice president along with the cabinet or some other body that the president names that's going to decide when the, if the president is disabled or unfit. Um, and that's going to create all sorts of palace coup and intrigue situations unless there's a close working relationship between the president and the vice president. So the 25th Amendment doesn't work unless there's a close working relationship in general between president and vice president, which is going to mean in the modern era, so this is both party practice and formal constitutional text, that presidents are handpicking their successors in a way, their running mates, that wasn't true before. So, for example, and now you're going to see one of the reasons, one of many reasons I don't like actually the next um, in line being the Speaker of the House, that person can be a person of the other party. Well, oh my God, that means that if some crazed person, some domestic terrorist or some um, um, uh, foreign enemy that wishes us ill manages somehow to take out the president, the vice president, they could actually affect regime change, switching presidential power from the party that won it on election day to the other party. Oh my God, that's so destabilizing to our system. And that can happen because the Speaker of the House is often uh, the leader of, uh, of, uh, of, of the other party. And every, um, um, almost every president since um, Lyndon Johnson has faced a Speaker of the other party. Um, um, Richard Nixon uh, uh, did. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so did Ronald Reagan, and so did Bill Clinton, and so did George W. Bush, and so did Barack Obama. So um, um, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter didn't. Uh, so let me take you all the way back to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. That day, John Wilkes Booth had actually visited Andrew Johnson in his um, boarding house, uh, left a little. Booth was a very famous actor. If he were alive today, he'd he'd be Brad Pitt or something like that. It was very. He's part of a very famous acting family, like Brangelina today or something. His father was a famous, or he'd be like the Redgraves or a, a, Barrymore. a Barrymore, Drew Barrymore, exactly. Um, so so he's a very famous actor, and he pays a call earlier that day uh, to Andrew Johnson in his boarding house. Johnson isn't in. Um, Booth leaves a little calling card saying, do not wish to disturb you. Are you in J.W. Booth? And, and to this day, we don't know, was he trying to kill Johnson? Was he trying to actually cast suspicion on Johnson? But there were people who said, oh, Johnson was in on Lincoln's assassination. There were people who said, oh, LBJ was in on Kennedy's assassination. Oh, and, don't, and it was in Texas, of course. Uh, James Garfield is assassinated. Um, he shot Union Station, and he didn't really quite handpick his, his running mate, Chester Arthur, who re represented, even though they were both in the same party, a different wing of the party. And the madman who shoots and, and uh, uh, Garfield, Garfield will linger for a while um, and, and then later die, as he's being wrestled to the ground in Union Station, says, 
Um, Arthur was um, the head of one faction of the party called the Stalwarts. They believed in a spoil system. Um, basically, whoever wins gets a lot of pork um, and, and, and patronage to hand out to party loyalists. And uh, James Garfield believed in kind of civil service, merit, good government, uh, rather than um, just handing out um, government positions to your pals. So Garfield's the head of one wing of the Republican Party. Arthur's the head of, uh, sometimes they're called um, half-breeds or mugwumps. And, 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 and uh, uh, Chester Arthur, his running mate, but not hand-picked, is the head of the stalwarts, the spoilsmen. And as this deranged madman is being wrestled to the ground, he shouts out, I'm a stalwart, and Arthur will be present. And in his pocket, there's a letter to President Chester Arthur with suggestions about who should be in the new cabinet. Uh, in our third administration. So, okay. He's a full-service assassin. <laughs> so, um, after these things happen in American history, after especially the assassination of Jack Kennedy, we have the 25th Amendment that codifies the different understanding. There should be a close, personal, working relationship between the president and the vice president, which means that nominees, party nominees in the 20th century are picking their running mates, you see. Um, uh, and, um, and, and that's the modern practice. Um, and if you believe that practice, again, I think you're going to have some suspicion of uh, the idea that next in line should be the Speaker of the House, um, who might be of the opposite political persuasion and party, rather than someone, in effect, handpicked apostolically by either the President or the Vice President or um, someone who basically traces his or her mandate um, to the fallen president who was elected on election day. Now, one final point, because I know we're drawing to the end of, of our session well, Let me, let me time. just comment on some, some of the things you said. I mean, it's interesting because if you draw go all the way back, there's a certain irony here, because originally, of course, there was the vice president was, you know, not related to the, to the president necessarily at all. Um, it was the person that got the second most Electoral votes. And can you spell assassination incentive when Adams, who used to be a friend of Jefferson's and now is not really, not so much, Adams comes in first in 1796, Jefferson comes in second, and they're running against each other, and now you put Jefferson in number two, the number two slot, and, and, and the world um, is beginning to um, polarize uh, England versus France, and one American party is pro-English, Adams's party, the other American party is pro-revolutionary France, Jefferson's party. That's an assassination incentive. You know, thank God it didn't happen, but if, if there's a huge policy disagreement between presidents and vice presidents, that's dangerous for America. So we got the 12th Amendment changed the rules so that actually now in general... Um, presidents, uh, uh, we, it's trying to make the world safe for political parties. We can run as a ticket, so you're not going to get a Federalist and a Republican, Adams versus Jefferson. You're going to get two Federalists or two Republicans. The 12th Amendment basically redraws the rules for vice presidential selection, and that leads to a system in which parties are putting together running mates, and so maybe they're, they're somewhat broadly compatible um, but parties sometimes ticket balance and, and pick a you know a mugwump um, or, um, uh, or a half breed versus a, a stalwart or something. So um, uh, as the system evolves, it's no longer the parties pairing two people together in a kind of three legged race and they don't pick each other. No, the person who gets the nomination picks his running mate, um, and that's the modern practice, um, and it's. Uh, reflected in the formal rules of the 25th Amendment is something, if you have a vice presidential vacancy, either because the president is dead or disabled and the Veep moves up, or something happens to the Veep, that's going to be filled again by hand-picked succession um, uh, approved by Congress, just as um, uh, for the nomination process, you know, it's basically the nominee picking someone that the convention, his party convention, sort of formally ratifies. I know we're coming to the end of this session, and we're going to talk about other bullets dodged um, uh, in this last election cycle, and then the bullet that wasn't dodged. Um, and I'm going to say one thing just uh, uh, um, uh, by way of foreshadowing the bullet that wasn't dodged. It's really important, um, not just who's at the top of the ticket, but who's number two. And the presidency isn't just about a platform, it's about people. Um, and so... 
John McCain handpicked his successor, his would-be successor, Sarah Palin, um, way back when. And in my view, she was not actually fit to be president. That's not a sexist thing because there are many women who have been. I actually voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and I think they both pass a competency test, as did Hillary Clinton, as would many other people. Um, but um, John McCain's First, was never president, but he made one genuinely presidential decision, and only one, and that was as the nominee of the party, he handpicked his running mate, and in my view, he handpicked someone who really actually wouldn't have been a, a competent president. That's what I thought at the time. That's what I continue to believe today, on a day where Sarah Palin has yet again tweeted out some... Um, um, uh, uh, genuinely sort of um, um, irresponsible and thoughtless things uh, about um, the uh, recent unpleasantness in, in, on Capitol Hill, um, the, the riot. Um, uh, and so, um, but that's because in the modern era, candidate, uh, the, the, the party nominee picks his own running mate. And that's the first and most important presidential-like decision, maybe the best way to handle, I've suggested, the problem of, of death right around election time would be to have the party nominee tell us not only who his running mate, one day her running mate, um, um, is and, and will be, but who's next in line, um, and just in case mishap occurs, um, and we need to modify the presidential succession law to make sure that that third in line is in, indeed um, third in line in the formal line of succession, cutting out um, Speaker of the House, President Pro Tem of the Senate, and making it something like Secretary of State, or, or it could be some other officer, but again, designated in effect by um, the, the president and confirmed by um, uh, um, uh, the Senate, um, just as on election day, we're in effect voting for um, not just the presidential nominee, but the vice presidential nominee, but we're also in effect in this alternative universe giving a mandate to the person who's, who is announced by, both, by each party as the number three. So I think it's, you know, it's really quite appropriate that we're talking about these things next time, this time and next time. We're going to, you know, transition in, the, in our next session, as, as Akil said, to uh, talking about the period after the election and seeing how some of these issues translate into a somewhat different landscape, but nevertheless um, has some uh, basic things in common. But I also think that you're seeing here some interesting themes. So, for, you know, we're talking about the vice presidency a lot. And I think many of us... Uh, you know, shared the first half of John Adams' reflection on his appointment, uh, his election to be vice president, which is, uh, I am nothing. Of course, he said that I am nothing, but I may be everything. Um, and what we're seeing over time is the vice presidency uh, as kind of a problem-solving position. It fills holes in the, that are there in the system. If the president dies, what if the president's incompetent, you know, and so forth. And it also, as I think we'll see in a, in a future discussion, the vice presidency can take, take on a role uh, wherein one can judge the success of a presidency in part by what happens to the vice president later. Does he become president or does she become president? And this is another, another theme that we'll, that we'll address. It's a and huge theme of the modern era. Um, early vice presidents became president because they were presidential runners-up, uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. Twelfth Amendment changes the rules. They become kind of an appendage. People don't focus on them anymore. But for reasons that we'll talk about in the 20th century, the two-term amendment, if presidents can't run for the third term, they have to run for a third term via their Veep. Ronald Reagan ruins the third term, called George H.W. Bush, for example, because of the nuclear era, um, because of um, the 25th Amendment, because of hand-picked succession. Vice presidents have become much more important in the modern era. Vice presidents almost always at least become their party's nominee to be president in future um, rounds and often become presidents of the United States in their own right. That's, that's a post-1950s uh, uh, phenomenon, basically, but it is our world today. And I think that, you know, in talking and listening to, to Akil talking about these issues, I think you get a sense that there really is a lot of, of good thinking to be done 
about areas that we might consider edge cases or sort of corners of the Constitution, but doesn't seem like such an edge case this week, does it? Um, you know, some, some of these things. So I think that uh, this is part of what will characterize uh, our podcast, which is this idea of thinking about things that maybe, you know, have been neglected, but, but if they become relevant, they will become enormously relevant, and they're worthy of good thinking, preventive thinking, problem-solving thinking, uh, and so forth. And uh, so, personally, I feel a debt of gratitude to Akil for thinking about these things ahead of time so that there are solutions ready uh, for us if we can just, uh, you know, make it clear that it's time to adopt them. And so right we'll- back, I'm right back at you, Andy, because here's what I'm grateful to you at. Um, for not just for arranging this whole podcast uh, with all of your expertise and and pushing me with great and hard and, and thoughtful questions, but also on the website akilamar.com that you're helping me create, we will have writings um, that will take readers into more detail on some of these things. So, for example, in this episode, you'll be able to read my uh, audience members can read my congressional testimony on this issue. And I actually wrote several op eds over the years on this issue that we, we, we can post. Um, um, uh, I talk in part uh, in these op eds about um, my uh, work with uh, um, the screenwriters of the West Wing that dramatized some of these really interesting um, issues in the later seasons of the West Wing. So, so readers can follow up on, on some of the things we're talking about um, by taking a look at the writings on the issue. Yes, and you can, you can explore the site by, as you would any site, but in addition, we're going to have uh, you know, uh, uh, links at the bottom of each podcast session to these things. So we'll have episode links and make it easy for you to have related readings. And then you can discover more and, and videos and you can discuss more on your own. And in addition, sometime over the next couple of weeks, hopefully in time for the broadcasting of this first episode, we'll have an opportunity for you to leave your own questions for Professor Amar. And we're also going to challenge you to think about the dilemmas that were posed in this episode today. So we talked about some of the difficulties that arise around the time of of the election if there's a a death of a candidate. Um, And we discussed things like the Greeley precedent and other uh, matters that cause it to be kind of a hole in the Constitution. So what would your solution be to this? Interested in uh, the audience's suggestions for how to address this. Professor Marr has his own solutions, which are discussed in the congressional testimony, but don't cheat. Uh, give us your own ideas, and then take a look at his. And uh, I think this will make for some interesting discussion going forward. So watch the uh, website for the opportunity to leave that input yourself, and we want to get you involved. Looking forward to discussing more about this uh, in our next session. More bullets dodged in part two, and then I think part three we'll talk about the big bullet that was not dodged. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.